Hey, good afternoon, everybody. This is Sam Davis here, and this is the BHR podcast series. And I'm going to be honest with you, this is my first podcast. So bear with me. I've done podcasts before uh, when someone else was running them, and they would just ask me questions. That was a lot of fun. Had a great time doing it. But it is completely different when there's a microphone and just me and my ideas in my head trying to think of something to say. So if you're tuning in, I want to thank you for doing that. Sit back, relax. Maybe I'll say something that that you'll like. Um, I do have some plans here for future podcasts. I want to talk about active addiction. I want to talk about recovery. I want to talk about emotional sobriety versus abstinence. I want to talk about relationships and recovery. Talk about the job and recovery. I want to talk about the family dynamic, treatment, sober living, the different types of treatment centers, medication-assisted treatment, methadone clinics, talk about interventions, enabling, boundaries. I want to talk about a life of abundance. So I've got some plans for this podcast down the road. But today, being as though this is my first one, I think just a simple introduction, tell you a little bit about who I am, where I came from, and what I do. Try to make a connection if I can. Tell you a little bit about my story. And then we'll take it from there. I'm a person in long-term recovery. My sobriety date is July 20th, 2009. For that, I'm very grateful. I currently live in Richmond, Virginia. From a little town called Blackstone, Virginia. Nottoway County, Virginia. I'm a rural guy. Raised... uh, Raised in a rural area on a farm. My family was uh, forestry and logging, sawmills. And uh, I was a big part of that when I was younger. Again, sobriety dates July 20th, 2009. Uh, first, I'm 46 years old. First time I ever picked up a drug or drink. I think was, I don't know, 10 years old. Got in my dad's liquor cabinet and uh, passed out naked on my bed. Um, First time I really remember getting high and it changing the way I felt and really that aha moment when it became my solution to life was you know, 12 years old. Smoked a joint in my grandparents' Christmas tree farm with my cousin. And that moment, you know, it, it changed my life. You know, it, it's I wanted to do it as often as I could and as much as I could from that day forward. And for a long time, you know, I just smoked weed and, and drank a little bit and well, I'll say a little bit. Every time I drank, I couldn't control the amount I drank. But I didn't drink all the time. But weed, smoked it as often as I could. Uh, that escalated into, in my 20s, went to opiates, uh, a little powder cocaine, pain pills. And then toward the end of my run, it was crack cocaine, methadone, opiates, marijuana, alcohol. Um pretty much anything you could get to change the way I feel, to make me escape. The fun had left a long time ago, long, long time ago. It wasn't fun anymore, and it hadn't been. It was just more about escape. Just take me out of here. Just take me out of here. I can remember driving down the road many times, headed to the dealer's house, and with my hands on the steering wheel, gripping the steering wheel, just crying tears rolling down my face not wanting to go to the dealer but not being able to turn around normal people don't understand that but people like me get that and I did that over and over again 
I remember waking up in the morning and they say the four horsemen, terror, frustration, bewilderment, and despair. I can remember rolling over on the side of my bed every morning when I come to, not really wake up, but come to or wake up and just wanting it all to end. I remember that feeling of feeling like the whole world is going to come down on my shoulders. And I remember that. And I don't ever want to forget that. But that's a that's not a good place to be. And I knew that I was created to be something different than that. I knew that. I think most of us are aware of that, that we were created to be something different than addicted individuals. But I couldn't pull it off for the life of me. I'd come off of a three-day cocaine run, and my wife at the time would ask me, and I'm, you know, I'm looking like a, looking like a hundred pounds of chewed bubble gum, all gray and nasty, and sunken eyes, and spent all my money, you know, and uh, spent everybody else's money that I could get my hands on. And she'd ask me, say, you don't you think you need to go to treatment? And I'd be like, nah, I got it. And if, if you're like me, you understand that. And if you've got a loved one that's like me and you're not like me, you understand it too. Uh, you've had that experience as, as well. And um, it's crazy. It's crazy. It's pure insanity. But, um, you know, like I said, it, the fun had been gone a long time. I was just trying to escape. I just wanted it all to end. I was digging myself a deeper hole and a deeper hole, and I, and like I said, I knew it. It's, it's such a such an internal conflict too, because you know you know you're created to be something different. You have no idea how to pull it off, and yet you can't stop smoking crack cocaine, or doing cocaine, or eating pills. And uh, my family, you know, tried to love me out of that for a long time. You know, they'd help me financially. They, you know, take care of the kids. They bail me out, give me an attorney. They would, you know, try to love me out of this thing because that's what families do, right? I mean, we're, we're supposed to help our family members and help our kids and keep our kids safe. But really what they were doing, and they didn't know it, they were, they were extending my stay out here in the addicted world. They were robbing me of the experience that I needed to have, which was pain and consequences that would one day create the desperation that I needed to embrace a 12-step process to change my personality and have that psychic change that brings about a recovered state. You see, I'm a recovered individual. says I'm, I'm recovered from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body. The obsession to do drugs and drink has left me a long time ago and has not returned, thank God. And, and that, is, that is a miracle, nothing short of a miracle. But it wasn't until my family had had enough where they had said, we will no longer enable you. And I was looking at the door of a prison, or jail at least, and uh, I'd been to jail before and I didn't like that. And uh, I said when I got out of jail, I said, oh, I'm not coming back here again. And, you know, when they open that door of that jailhouse and they let you out and you got your civilian clothes on and you've got somebody waiting on you at the gate with a Mountain Dew and a pack of cigarettes and you're going to get some fast food or the Shoney's or whatever you could afford at that time. And, you know, there's no better feeling in the world. And I'm looking back behind me going, I'm not coming back to this jail again. And I'm not going to do drugs again. 
I'm not going to drink again. What happens? I drink again. I do drugs again. I end up in jail again. <clears throat> and that happened again. Well, I was on probation. And, uh, man, I owe this probation officer my life, too, because she allowed my family to kind of take over and set up an intervention for me in the probation office. And they had the leverage to get me moving to treatment because the probation officer was going to put me in jail that day or I go to treatment. So I, you know, my probation officer, not knowing really a whole lot about addiction, had told me one time, she said, look, I had caught a possession of cocaine and that was what I was charged for. She said, look, you're on probation. She said, now you can drink, but don't come up in here and give a dirty urine test for cocaine. I'm like, all right, I got you. I'm not going to do that. Understood. Crystal clear. Not going to do it. Not a minute. When I left there, I meant it. I was just, I could drink. Wasn't going to do cocaine. Was going to be a good boy. So what happened is I got called in to give a drug test, and I came in. I gave a dirty urine for cocaine. She said, what happened, Sam? I said, well, I got drunk. You know? So when I drink, I'm going to do some cocaine. And that's what I did. So she called me in again, and by this time I'd wised up a little bit. I had a condom full of, or a balloon, it was a balloon full of my son's urine. Um, because every normal person, you know, asked their son to urinate in a cup. And uh, I had a, a, a balloon full of his urine that I was going to go in there and give a, you know, fake drug test, or fake the drug test. And she was in there asking me questions. I'm telling her how good I'm doing. I'm again, I'm all gray and scaly and just look like an old crackhead, you know, missing a tooth, you know, just looking like a mess, a complete mess. And um, she said, it's all good and all, but come on back here. And back there was an interventionist who's gone today. His name was John Southworth. He was a good guy and he's helped a lot of people. And he was my mentor for a long time. Once I entered the working in the treatment industry years later, a couple years later. <clears throat> Excuse me, but he um, he was sitting there, and there were two deputies. My probation officer said, uh, "You know, this man has something to say to you." And he told me, he said, "You're dying of a cocaine addiction." And he said, "The family wants to offer you some help. We have a flight that leaves at six o'clock today. We have just enough time to get to the airport, and you're going to enter a long-term treatment program, or you're going to go to prison today. What's your choice going to be?" And he was just as cool as a cucumber when he was telling me this. And I was so sick at the time that I had to sit there and think about it. And I go outside, and I'm smoking at the time. And I go outside, and I'm sitting outside of the, the police station and where the probation officer was. And she says, what are you thinking about? I said, well, I'm looking at that police car. I've been in there before, and I don't like that. And I'm looking at this interventionist. He's a rental car. It was like a Lincoln or a Cadillac or something. And that was in front of the police car. And I'm like, well... I don't want to go in that patrol car. I'm going to go with this Lincoln. And I didn't know it, but that day would completely change my life. Woke up in a long-term treatment program down in Austin, Texas. And it, you know, I had been to treatment before, so I thought I knew the treatment game. And I really wasn't engaged in the process because my dad, I've always been able to manipulate my father. And I thought I still had options while I was in treatment. That I could, if I just couldn't take it, I could call my dad and he'd get me out of it. And two months into that thing, I'd had all I wanted of it. 
and I walked out of there and I called my dad and I said, Dad, get me home. I need a need a bus ticket. And he said, You're on your own. I'm not buying you a bus ticket. You can figure it out down there on the streets of Austin, Texas, or you can go back to treatment, but we're done. Don't even come back to the state. We don't want to see you. Click. So uh, once my options really had been removed, all options exhausted, and I was in a lot of pain, and that pain created some desperation, and as a result of that, I got well. Now, I was in that treatment program for a long time, and... I got out and didn't know what I was going to do with my life. Got a job in Austin, Texas, trimming trees. Stood in line, got food stamps. Never had to do that before. But I was willing to do whatever I had to do. Then I got a job on a party barge on Lake Travis, Texas. One of the best experiences I had in early sobriety. Crazy as it sounds, you know, you, you're early sobriety. Well, I was 11 months, almost a year sober, working on a party barge. Everyone on the crew was sober. I was sober. People that we took out were not. Um, we take out everybody, man. We took out roller derby girls, uh, weddings, birthday parties, uh, nudist colonies, sororities, fraternities. Anybody that could pay to be on that barge, we'd take them out. And uh, one of the best experiences I've had of what sobriety is about. Sobriety is about freedom. My experience around that showed me that. That the steps work. The 12 steps work. Living by those disciplines and following directions and staying engaged in the program works. Because I had freedom on that barge, on that party barge. Absolute freedom. Man, I you know... I um I don't know about how other people are in, in, in recovery, but the opposite sex was a struggle with me in early recovery and every time I'd go to treatment because when you take drugs and alcohol out of my system, the next thing I'm going to want to make myself feel better is going to be the opposite sex. And I'd find a sick one in treatment just about every time and off we'd go to get each other well. Well, that didn't happen. Well, it tried to happen at this last treatment program I went to, but they put a stop to that and... And uh, so I'm, you know, I'm on this party barge one night and or one day, and we had this fraternity out there, a bunch of young people from University of Texas out there partying, and um, they had these Jello shots, you know, and and you know, I'd never had a Jello shot before, but they look good, you know. Hell, I like Jello, and there was this college girl. It was a two-decker party barge and steps, and and. This college girl comes down the, the, the steps there and she's in a bikini and everything's just a bouncing and shaking and the jello shaking and all that. She's got a jello shot in each hand. She says, Take a shot with me. And the the, the promises of the twelve step fellowship that I am that that I am in, the promises of the tenth step of, of that process promises me that if I do the work that I'll recoil from it as from a hot flame. Now here was jello, alcohol and a nice-looking college girl in a bikini that, you know, everything right there, right? And I simply said, I recoiled from it as from a hot flame. I said, no, ma'am, no thank you. Um, enjoy your stay. Please use your trash receptacles. Let's leave Lake Travis as clean as when we found it. Enjoy your day. And I went on about, about my job. And uh, 
I'll never forget that day because because that's when it was solidified in me that these 12 steps work. The obsession to drink and do drugs had left me and the promises were coming true. I had recoiled from it as from a hot flame and I was very grateful. From that moment, I, I, uh, yeah, I had several moments like that, you know, and um, it wasn't long after that I got my job, first job in a treatment center. And I was a detox tech, you know, and um, one of the greatest, greatest jobs I've ever had, right, was uh, working in a treatment center. And from there, you know, I, I um, moved back to Virginia and became a, a full-time single dad to my kids, um, which is huge. People like me and the lives, that, the life that I lived years ago don't get their kids, typically. Guys like me that 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 burnt down relationships and destroyed things the way that I did don't typically have the life that I live today. I'm so grateful. Today my life looks like I've got a home. I've got a business. I've got a, a program here in Richmond for men. I'm pretty well respected, I think, in the community. Um, I've got my kids that I'm doing school functions. I'm doing sports. I'm, I'm feeding them. I'm educating them. I'm medicating them. I'm disciplining them as best I can. I'll fall short. And really, I'm my own worst enemy because, you know, my head tells me all kinds of things about how I'm not good enough still, you know, about how I'm not doing this right. You know, I set so many expectations on myself. I don't think there's any way that I'd ever live up to them, right? I think we are our own worst enemy, if you're any, if you can relate to that, you know, that, that's, <laughs> I know I'm not alone in that. But where I'm at today, 10 years and a couple of months into this thing, the biggest struggles that I have, and this comes along about every year or so, as I go through these little phases where I let the life that this 12-step program and this fellowship gives me, I let it get in the way of my of my program life, and what I mean by the twelve step program, I let it get in and I get it let it get in the way of that life, and I become I become complacent. Now, not one day since I've been sober have I missed a prayer in the morning or the evening, but I will become selfish and self centered. I will become fear driven, and I will be in financial insecurity. And I will burn down relationships. And I will be disconnected from my fellowship. And I suffer. You know, I struggle. Right? And then that creates some pain, which creates some desperation, which gets me back to basics of the program. And the basics of the program, I'll get to some meetings, stay in touch with my sponsor, stay accountable to people come honest and transparent and that always works and I don't know why that I have to let it get to the pain wise before I get reconnected or why I don't just stay connected but that's the struggle that I struggle with and having some years under my belt is staying connected so I make a commitment right to 
to get back plugged into the meetings and in the fellowship and, and make new friends, you know, make new connections, have new commitments, be transparent, be honest. And look, I'm going to do that on these podcasts. You know, I'm going to do this once a week. I'm going to get on here and I'm going to run my mouth. I'm going to have some guests join me. And uh, we're going to see where this thing goes, guys. So, y'all, I want to thank you for tuning in. Any of you that listened, I want to thank you. We'll be back next week and hopefully do things a little bit different, a little bit better. Be blessed, and y'all have a good day, and thank you very much.